to fear, where terror is homegrown. Join us as we take a drive down dusty back roads and discover the obscure and dark history of this country, human and otherwise, that lurk in your backyard. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 2 of State of Fear. I am Chris, and with me as always is my co-host James. Hey everybody, how y'all doing? So today's episode is on Alaska. So we're discussing an event that happened in Alaska in 1986. It is the sighting of three UFOs by Japan Airlines Flight 1628 on November 17th, 1986. Now, everybody has their idea or their belief of what they think a UFO or UFOs or aliens are. Um, And they range from, you know, uh, little gray men to interdimensional beings to future versions of us. Absolutely. Uh, So, but I'm interested in hearing, James, what do you think UFOs slash aliens are? Well, aliens themselves, uh, I've often been a strong believer. I am... uh, a man of Christian faith. Okay. I'm not a thumper by no means, but I do believe in all this giant creation the Lord has made that we are not the only living beings in this in this universe. Okay. Uh, there's probably other human colonies, you know, we're his creation. So to think that Earth is the only realm where human life exists, I just, I, I just, I've always, it's been very hard for me to buy that. Okay. Uh, as far as UFOs, I have unfortunately never seen one, at least not that I know of. Um, grew up in the mountains, and I think in a lot of cases in the old days or wherever, when people would see UFOs, if they're, you know, what's, I'm trying to hmm. kind of articulate what it is that I think. Like when I used to be, I'd go up the canyon, for instance, pitch black, you know, mm-hmm. I'm out camping or whatever, and you're looking up, I could physically see with my naked eye satellites and stuff right. orbiting the earth, you right. know, uh-huh. uh, some of them low lying. I've seen uh, low flying uh, meteorites before that actually made noise. Okay. You know, now do these qualify as some of the things that, you know, the stories I've heard? No, uh-huh. not really. Uh, so... UFOs, unidentified flying object, as everybody knows, uh, is anything I would think that you'd see in the sky that you cannot immediately figure out what it is. I didn't want to say identify because that would sound... <laughs> right, that's the opposite of the term, yeah. It's like, hello, yeah. Uh, but that's basically what I think it is. Um, you know, I believe in the Roswell story. I, I, I honestly believe something crashed out there. Mm-hmm. Is the government out there... You know, do they have, you know, special craft? Are they doing some kind of testing? I don't know. Probably. You know, I don't trust them fools. Right. (laughs) As As far as you can throw them. Nope, that's it. So I'm thinking, you know, some of this stuff is probably experimental aircraft, but I also firmly believe that some of these things 
are not explained like that large uh i wish i knew the term uh what the specific sighting was but i really found it interesting it was in arizona with a giant triangle the phoenix lights the phoenix lights yeah, yeah. sorry it was too symmetrical stayed at the same level for several hours so you're saying you don't believe the official report that it was flares dropped by the military? Hell no, because I was in the military and I've seen flares. They don't hover like that. Plus, if they were all, f- they'd have to be fired at the exact same time, the exact same altitude, and evenly spaced. And flares have parachutes. They drift in the wind. They don't come down smooth. So I'm just telling you, no, I don't believe that. For one damn second. Plus, the military would not purposely drop flares over a civilian population. Nope. And then they started disappearing. So then they tried to... I remember in the story, they tried to justify it by lining it up against that ridge line. Right, right. And trying to lower it down to say, oh, it disappeared in this... Um, so you believe that aliens could be just other versions of us on different planets? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. A, maybe even a much more evolved version of us on other planets, and they're coming back to see how we're doing as well. Maybe they've already reached that next plateau, you know, like post-death. Who okay. knows? Right. You know, who knows? I know when we go to heaven, what our idea of heaven is, we are all to actually be living on this planet mm-hmm. in a glorified body, you know, in a much better shape, no sickness, no hunger, you know, you know, you know what you've heard in, right. in Bible school. Yeah. So to think that, like I said, I believe, you know, maybe that is our next level. Are we going to turn into little gray guys with little big fat heads? I don't think so. No. Okay. But yeah, I, I do believe there are other forms of life in this universe. God, we, God could have had several experiments as far as huh. I'm concerned. All right. I mean, I don't know what other people's beliefs are. Those are just some of mine. Well, and that's what makes it a belief. It's what you believe in. It's your own thing. Yep. So, uh, I believe that the unidentified flying objects that make right angle turns at speeds unable to be uh, handled by our jets or our pilots and alien, other alien species, the greys, the reptilians, the prey mantis, the nords, I believe they're all interdimensional beings, as in they all exist in parallel dimensions. Hmm. Um, I believe that they enter our dimension. Their their fourth dimension beings are higher, and they can enter our dimension the way that we are able to enter the second dimension. Okay. But the second dimension cannot enter us because it's too far advanced. So, therefore, we cannot... The fourth dimension is supposed to be time. Yes. So, we cannot enter time as of yet because we have not acquired that ability. No. So, I believe all these beings are fourth dimension beings and they enter through whatever wormhole or space hole or or, um, black hole, whatever it is they they do. They, they They pierce through time to enter not just our reality but other realities too, which is why you have reports of Grey's mixing in with reptilians or greys and bigfoot creatures or greys and nords they yeah. they go through other dimensions and they form alliances and, and all this stuff um and that goes into like you know some sci-fi crap but yeah i believe because from what i have read in order to travel the vast distances across space even if they had a ship faster than light you would need generational ships to make it to a destination that is light years away at least so we've been told. Right. You know, like I said, how are we going to prove it? Can we get into space? Right. No, most of us cannot. 
But you know, my my thought is that if these beings are so much more advanced, they wouldn't they wouldn't even have to come from a different planet. They would be able to pierce through their dimension into ours much much easier and a, a much less of a fuel expense than it would be to go across vast distances. That's a very interesting theory, and that's just my belief. Well, with the higher technologies and stuff that have to be available for them to be able to do these kind of interstellar things right i absolutely agree with that yeah so okay before we get into our main topic let's go ahead and get into the weird news of the day James, you found a very interesting article to read. Yes, and these articles don't necessarily are, are not always going to follow the episode, so to say, but uh, just interesting, weird stories from, from around the globe. But current that stories. Are current. Yeah. Yeah, very current. This particular article I found was from November 9th. It was a very interesting article entitled How Rabies Inspired Folktales of Werewolves and Vampires. And when I think about that, I absolutely can see how that could happen. Somebody right. infected yeah. with, with rabies is enraged, they're animalistic, mm-hmm. savage, yeah. and can cause physical damage to another human being with their bare hands. Yeah, absolutely. So the story goes, in 1855, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported on the gruesome murder of a bride by her new husband. The story came from a French countryside where the woman's parents had initially prevented the couple's engagement on the account of strangeness of conduct sometimes observed in the young man, although he otherwise was a most eligible match. The parents eventually consented, and the marriage took place. Shortly after the newlyweds withdrew to consummate their bond, fearful shrieks came from their quarters. That's never good. No. People quickly arrived to find the poor girl in the agonies of death and her bosom torn open and lacerated in a most horrible manner, and the wretched husband in a fit of raving madness and covered with blood, having actually devoured a portion of the unfortunate girl's breast. Real nice. Yeah, that's, that's terrible. Ugh. The bride died a short time later. Her husband, after a, vi- a most violent resistance, also expired. Does that mean that he was beat to death in prison? I don't know, but that, mean, that sounds like he died like shortly after he killed her. No, he, and, it, maybe it means that he died of rabies after he... Was exposed to it. and Maybe. But, I mean, if he, he wasn't acting like this at the ceremony and then he just flipped a switch and killed very, her. Yeah, that's very strange. And then died shortly after. Anyway, the story continues. What could have caused this horrifying incident? It was then recollected in answer to searching questions by a physician that the groom had previously, quote unquote, been bitten by a strange dog. The passage of madness from dog to human seemed like the only possible reason for the grisly turn of events. The Eagle described the episode matter-of-factly as a sad, distressing case of hydrophobia, or in today's parlance, rabies. Hydrophobia. Interesting. Yeah. But the account read like a gothic horror story. It was essentially a werewolf narrative. The mad dog's bite caused a hideous metamorphosis 
which transformed its human victim into a nefarious monster whose vicious sexual impulses led to obscene and loathsome violence. A new book by author Jessica Wang entitled Mad Dogs and Other New Yorkers, Rabies, Medicine, and Society in American Metropolis, 1840-1920, explores the hidden meanings behind the ways people talked about rabies, variants, of the rabid groom story had been told and retold in English language newspapers in North America since at least the beginning of the 18th century and they continued to appear as late as the 1890s. The Eagle's account was in essence a folk tale about mad dogs and the thin dividing line between human and animal. Humans are animals. <laughs> Rabies created fear because it was a disease that seemed to be able to turn people into raging beasts. Now, you know what's funny? I've never heard many of those stories okay. about people turning into raging beasts. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I just haven't read enough. But I've never heard of a human actually going berserk with rabies. With rabies. I know, I know they've, they've had like madness or they get really sick. Right. But I thought, you know, they get the shots in the stomach or whatever the hell and then they're okay. Maybe this is before they had the vaccine for humans. Perhaps. Perhaps. The historian Eugene Weber once ob observed that French peasants in the 19th century feared above all wolves, mad dogs, and fire. Canine madness, or the disease that we know today as rabies, conjured up the canine terrors that have formed the stuff of nightmares for centuries. Other infectious diseases, including cholera, typhoid, and diphtheria, killed far more people in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The cry of mad dog nonetheless sparked an immediate sense of terror because a simple dog bite could mean a protracted ordeal of grueling symptoms followed by certain death. Modern medicine knows that rabies is caused by a virus. Once it enters the body, it travels to the brain via the nervous system. The typical lag time of weeks or months between initial exposure and the onset of symptoms means that rabies is no longer a death sentence if a patient receives quick medical attention, antibiotics, injections of immune antibodies, and vaccine in order to build immunity soon after encountering a suspect animal. Though it's rare for people to die of rabies in the U.S., the disease still kills tens of thousands of people globally every year. That's scary. I did not know that. I didn't either. That's very scary. I've also heard that that rabies is like a form of zombieism. Yeah. You know, that raging mm -hmm. zombie crap. Yeah. The, the more like the World War Z type. Not right. The, the, not the, the, the newer ones. Not, not the slow. Not drink. the Romero ones. Yeah. yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. According to the 19th century sources, according to 19th century sources, after an incubation period of between 4 and 12 weeks, symptoms might start with a vague sense of agitation or restlessness. They then progress to the racking spasmodic episodes characteristic of rabies, along with sleeplessness, excitability, feverishness, rapid pulse, drooling, and labored breathing. Victims not infrequently exhibited hallucinations or other mental disruptions as well. Perfect. Efforts to mitigate violent outbursts with drugs often failed and physicians could then do little more than stand by and bear witness. Final release came only after the disease ran its inevitable fatal course, usually over a period of two to four days. Even today, rabies remains essentially incurable once clinical signs appear. Oh, wow. That sucks. That is scary. Centuries ago, the loss of bodily control and rationality triggered by rabies seemed like an assault on a victim's basic humanity from a real dreaded 
disease transmitted by animals emerged spine-tingling visions of supernatural forces that transferred malevolent animals' powers and turned people into monsters. 19th century American accounts never invoked the supernatural directly, but descriptions of the symptoms indicated unspoken assumptions about how the disease is transmitted the biting animal's essence to the suffering human. Newspapers frequently described those who contracted rabies from dog bites as barking and snarling like dogs while cat bite victims scratched and spat. That's weird. That is weird. That's very unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no shit. kidding, right? Hallucinations, respiratory spasms, and out-of-control convulsions produced fearful impressions of the rabbit animal's evil imprint. Traditional preventative measures also showed how Americans quietly assumed a blurred boundary between humanity and animality. Folk remedies held that dog bite victims could protect themselves from rabies by killing the dog that had already bitten them. How in the hell would that work? Or applying the offending dog's hair to the wound or cutting off its tail. Those seem like plausible explanations or uh, remedies, huh? Yeah. That was ridiculous. Such preventatives implied a need to cut an invisible supernatural tie between a dangerous animal and its mm, human prey. Interesting. That is interesting. You know, I know how they always talk. If you get scratched by a werewolf, you know, you're going to turn into one, all that stuff. I get it. Yeah. Sometimes the disease left eerie traces. When a Brooklynite died from rabies in 1886, the New York Herald recorded a freakish occurrence. Within minutes after the man's last breath, the bluish ring on his hand, the mark of the Newfoundland's fatal bite, disappeared. Only death broke the mad dog's pernicious hold. It's possible that, along with werewolves, vampire stories also originated from rabies. Physician Juan Gomez Alonso has pointed out a resonance between vampirism and rabies and the hair-raising symptoms of the disease. The distorted sounds, exaggerated facial appearances, restlessness, and sometimes wild and aggressive behaviors that made sufferers seem more monstrous than human. Extreme oversensitivity stimuli, which set off the torturous spasmodic episodes associated with rabies, could have had a particularly strange effect. A glance at a mirror might set off a violent response in a chilling parallel with the living dead's vampire's inability to cast a reflection. Moreover, in different Eastern European folkloric traditions, vampires turn themselves not into bats, but into wolves or dogs. The key vectors of rabies. So, as aspiring werewolves, vampires and other haunts take to the streets for Halloween, Remember that beneath the annual ritual of candy and costume fun lie the darker recesses of the imagination. Here, animals, disease, and fear intermingle and monsters materialize at the crossover point between animality and humanity. Cave Canem, beware of the dog. So that was a long story. It was, but it's very, uh, very interesting. I guess it, it kind of that's kind of makes sense. It's kind of like a duh moment. I mean. You know, it, you know, it reminds me a lot of that movie Pet Cemetery. Yes. Remember when they buried that kid and oh, he came yeah. back and he was ravenous? It reminds me a lot of that. Like he, he was given something or he was injected with something that made him turn into his more animalistic side. And that's what kind of rabies does. Yeah, it does. And it's, I think it's the same effect. You know, they talk about the, the bath salts and stuff like that. What it does mm-hmm. to the brain because the chemicals in that stuff destroy the brain. Right. Rabies attacks the brain causing madness. And depending upon which particular portions of the brain it affects first, because mm-hmm. I don't know if it has any specific target, I'm not a doctor, but if it destroys certain, 
you know, certain areas of the brain that control your behavior before it control and before it destroys your motor functions, you can go mad and develop, you know, go into hyperdrive. You right. have like adrenaline rush and stuff like that. And we all know that some people can develop superhuman strength with adrenaline right. rushes. So they would be able to physically tear a human apart with their bare hands. And, and you, like you that. combine that with the already like built-in fear of the supernatural or the unknown and you know early 19th 17th century life and everything's you know the forest is scary and yeah strangers are scary and then you know everybody's a witch everybody. you know <laughs> and, and you combine that with with somebody who has superhuman strength and is acting animalistic yep. with an unknown cause you know then yeah i can i can definitely see where those stories would come from Well, before we get into today's main topic, the sighting of three UFOs by Japan Airlines Flight 1628, let's do a little quick uh, brief history of UFOs in Alaska and just kind of give you some facts. So there have been over 573 reported encounters, according to the National UFO Reporting Center, going as far back as 1939, with the most recent being September 2019, which is interesting because... The largest population of Alaska was 741,500 people in 2016, which makes it number four in sightings in the U.S. with an estimated 74 people per 100,000 who report seeing a UFO. So a a state with a very sparse population, because the whole state only has 700,000 people. And they're mostly concentrated in the southern regions. Right. There are some there are some settlements up north, but most of those are like your your oil drilling and stuff like that. Right, right. Or fishing. And we in here in Houston have like how many millions of people? <laughs> Nobody knows. Right. Yeah. Last they, estimate about four million. Four million. Four million people. Um, but Alaska is number four in UFO sightings because of the ratio per capita, per yeah. capita of ratio of, of people versus um, number of sightings. So that, that's that's pretty interesting. I have an interesting little theory on that though. Yeah. I think because it's so far north, there was a reason we bought Alaska from, I believe we got it from Russia. Okay. Let me hear your theory. I wish I I should know my history better on that. But I know we acquired Alaska, and I think we did it in part so because of the barrenness of the state that the government Mm -hmm. likes to go up there, and I think they have secret test facilities up there because they know that not many people can get to it. Yeah. Uh, so some of these things could be military aircraft, experimental stuff like we discussed before. Right, right. It's, it's always a possibility. I, I I don't see why not. I mean, when, when places like Area 51 get overrun or become well-known, you know, why not go somewhere where the, the there's more land and people? Exactly. And like you said, it's a harsh environment. It's very harsh. And they could be subterranean, for all we know. They could have tunneled into the ice, you know. Oh, yeah, very easily. Because we've had Alaska for decades, you know, mm-hmm. so they could have been developing that state forever. Yeah. You know, right under our noses. No one's going to go out into the middle of the frozen tundra to look for a quote-unquote base that might not exist. Yeah, and like I said, and this is theory only, and it's just my opinion. Right. But a lot of sightings, and especially if it's that concentrated, could could be due to a lot of military aircraft in the area uh but there also could be some uh, legit stuff because i yeah. mean 
you know, we got a lot of strange stuff happens up north like that. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all kinds of, I mean, Canada and uh, Alaska, they see all yep. kinds of stuff up there. Yes, they do. Okay. Well, let's get on to the topic of today's story. Um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty excited because it wasn't one that I had known about before doing the research for it. Um, and I, I'd studied UFO encounters before, and I've known probably a good couple, two, three, or four handfuls of more of the famous ones, some of the more obscure ones. But this one I, I'd never heard of before, and it's it's a U.S. sighting. Yeah. So it's and, very, very strange that I've never heard of it. And it's actually known as Alaska's best-known UFO encounter. Yes, it is. So it's the uh, it comes out of a article, actually a recent article. Well, it, it was not a recent article, but uh, recently in October 2019, the story was retold for the 33rd anniversary of the event, which took place November 17th, 1986. Three UFOs played tag with Japan Airlines Flight 1620 for about 50 minutes while they were observed by the terrified flight crew. During the last 30 minutes, the UFOs were tracked on military and civilian radar, and the entire encounter was verified by a high-level administrator of the FAA. Now, Japan Airlines Captain Kenju Terachi was an ex-fighter pilot and a senior airline pilot with more than 10,000 hours flight experience. So this guy, he's been around. Yes. He's flown quite a bit. He's seen things. So he knows what is an airplane. He knows what's a helicopter. He knows what's not any of those things. So he was assigned to fly Japan Airlines cargo flight from Paris to Reykjavik, Anchorage, and on to Tokyo. On November 17th at around 5.09 p.m. Alaskan time, the Anchorage Air Route Traffic Control Center contacted Japan Airlines 1628, which at the time was about 104 miles northeast of Fort Yukon. The flight controller asked the pilot to adjust his heading so the plane would pass south of Fort Yukon and Fairbanks. The co-pilot then turned the plane to the left about 15 degrees, at which time Captain Tarachi, sitting on the left side of the cockpit, saw unidentified lights out his side window to the left and below them. He thought they might have been military planes, and so he decided to ignore them, but after a few minutes, he realized these unidentified aircraft were actually pacing him. Now, that brings me real quick. Yeah. That right there, uh -huh. when they're asking the deviate, yeah. I don't know if they were instructed Mm -hmm. By somebody hired, say, get them out of there. We've got two aircraft in the area. Go to bed. No, there's no telling. Yeah. But, yeah, as the details of the story unfold, at this point, I would think, oh, they're just a couple of military aircraft up there, and they don't want nobody seeing these or whatever. Right. So, divert. Yeah. Know. I mean, but, they, they want you to pass south of Fort Yukon, so they want you to pass over Fort Yukon. Yeah, something's up. They could be doing military maneuvers out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Flight 1628 contacted the Anchorage Center twice in rapid succession and asked if there were any other aircraft in the area. The center responded that there were no military aircraft and ground radar did not show any other aircraft other than Flight 1628. Then the two lights began to move in a very erratic manner. Tarachi's recollection for his official report to the FAA states as thus, The distance from the lights were, were far enough from us and we felt no extreme danger. I thought perhaps it was a UFO. The lights were Still moving strangely, most unexpectedly, two spaceships appeared directly in front of the plane, shooting off lights. The inside cockpit shined brightly, and I felt the warmth of the UFO's thrusters on my face. That, that's pretty close to them, damn. 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 That's really close. Yeah, I'm saying, and you're feeling it through that glass? Yeah. That glass at that altitude for that kind of warmth. And you feel the warmth, yeah. Golly. Then, three to seven seconds later... The fire, like from jet engines, stopped and became a small circle of lights as they began to fly in a, in a level flight at the same speed as we were. Hmm. 
The middle of the body of the ship sparked an occasional stream of lights like a charcoal fire. Yeah, that's weird. Okay. Yeah. Its shape was a square flying 500 feet to 1,000 feet in front of us, very slightly higher in altitude than us. Its size was about the same size as the body of a DC-8, a size similar to a Boeing 707. Now, I've seen conflicting reports on that, though, because okay. I did read up on this a little bit. And yeah. Some said it was Boeing, and some says it dwarfed their the aircraft, and they're driving a... What is that, a big Seven, old 747 mm-hmm. cargo plane? Yes, yes, they are. And that is not a small aircraft. No, so not at all. they were getting dwarfed, a 767 is bigger, but it wouldn't dwarf it. Okay. You know. Yeah. You know, that's still a huge aircraft. Yeah. It's like Air Force One size. That's huge. Know? That's so it's huge. Big. Yeah. You know, so to be dwarfed, I would think it'd be a little bit bigger than that. Been bigger than that, yeah. It's impossible for any man-made machine to make a sudden appearance in front of a jumbo jet that is flying 910 kilometers per hour and to move along in a formation paralleling our aircraft. But we did not feel threatened or in danger. Honestly, we were simply astounded. I have no idea why they came so close to us. There was a pale white flat light in the direction where the ships flew away, pacing us. The Anchorage Center replied that they saw nothing on the radar. I set our digital weather radar distance to 20 miles, radar angle to horizon. There it was on the screen, a large green round object that had appeared 7 or 8 miles away in the direction of the object. We arrived at the sky above the Ellison Air Force Base and Fairbanks. It was a clear night. We were just above the bright city lights and we checked the pale white light behind us. There was a silhouette of a gigantic ship. We must get away quickly. This is all verbatim from his report. Mm-hmm. A terrified Captain Tarachi, in coordination with the Anchorage Center, attempted evasive maneuvers such as flying in a circle and changing altitude. The giant UFO, later described by Tarachi as the size of two aircraft carriers, shadowed flight 1628 through all maneuvers. That must be the one that, that makes you more mentioned. sense. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. And they said they did see three uh, objects. Two, so Now, a 747 could sit on the deck of an aircraft carrier. Right. And I if mean, it, it was the size of two of them, that's gigantic. Yeah. That is huge. I would... I would drop a load of my pants <laughs> if i saw something. if i was in the sky in a 747 and i saw something the size of two aircraft carriers in the sky yeah in the same sky as me i would lose my mind i would probably crash a plane and i watched a couple of uh what you would call cgi reenactments oh where yeah they yeah, put yeah. these things together mm-hmm. and they showed them flying in perfect precision and then the evasive maneuver that you spoke of he actually the, the tower actually gave them permission to fly a 360-degree circle. Oh, wow. So basically, they just pulled a complete circle, went yeah. all the way around, came back, and the thing was gone. Oh, wow. But then they said it was tailing them. Okay. If I remember, if I recall correctly, yeah. the actual UFO was tailing the aircraft, and they were like, what the hell? They wrote it off afterwards as a radar a radar uh, shadow oh wow okay. they call it like a radar reflection yeah yeah, yeah. i think i've heard of that and i'm yeah. sitting there going no no that's them trying to yeah try, you know they're trying to throw people trying off the trail come, yeah. put it under the rug yeah yeah and, and, I, hate, under the and rug. I hate that because I i've always been a firm believer that the government does not have the right to keep information from the public right if there are things out there Things we need to be aware of. But you know what? Humans are panicky animals anyway. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So God knows how they would handle it. Oh, it'd be mass rioting and looting and just mass genocide probably.
The second annual Bayou City Paranormal Symposium is here, April 25th and 26th at the Pasadena Convention Center. Special guests include John Zaffis, Katie Stafford, the Kling Brothers, and more. Two spine-tingling interactive exhibits, including the fan-favorite Psychomantium 2. Over 40 vendors and exhibitors will be on hand. Free vendor shopping all weekend. Discounted pre-sale tickets and VIP available now through February 29th. Bayou City's premier event for the things that go bump in the night. Go to badwolfevents.com for tickets and more info. The Anchorage Center offered to scramble a military jet, but Captain Taraji declined the offer, feeling unintended consequences of a military confrontation with the UFO. About that time, a United Airlines passenger jet flew into the same Arizona and was requested by the ATC to get a visual on the situation. Taraji reported, When the United plane came by our side, the spaceship disappeared suddenly. The strange encounter ended 150 miles away from Anchorage. Now, in 1986, John Callahan was FAA Division Chief of the Accidents and Investigations Branch in Washington, D.C. About a week after the JLA 1620 incident, he got a call from Alaska. Callahan's recollections were recorded in an interview conducted circa 2000. His comments are as follows, though edited uh, for brevity and clarity. I forgot who... It was that called, but he says, we got a problem here. I don't know what to tell the media. The whole FAA office is full of media from Alaska. Callahan asked, what the, what's the problem? He says, it's a UFO. I said, what UFO? He says, well, last week we had a UFO chase a 747 across the skies up here for about 30 minutes or so. There goes the cover-up. Yep. Yeah, there begins the cover-up, I should say. It begin- absolutely. Mm-hmm. I told them to get all the data together. I wanted all the civilian and military discs that they had and all the tapes they had available and flown overnight to the tech center where I'm sitting. The military refused to send their tapes, but he got everything from the ATC. We told him that we wanted this room set up to be just like it was at Anchorage. And we wanted all the data to come to this scope and we wanted to see everything the controller had seen. We want to hear everything you heard. We wanted, it all to tie, we wanted it all tied together, the radar, the digital radar, and the sound. When Callahan played the tapes, he heard a three-way conversation between Anchorage Air Traffic Control, ATC, uh, Elmendorf's NORAD Regional Operations Control Center, and, the, and Captain Tarachi of JLA 1628. He also played a tape of the ATC radar sightings on a scope. Now, Anchorage Air Traffic Control didn't see the UFOs on their radar, but based on on their conversation, the military were clearly tracking UFOs, Callahan explained. Mm-hmm. The military controller has what they call height-finding radar, and they have long-range radar and short-range radar. So if they didn't catch it on one of their systems, they didn't catch it on the other, ours wouldn't record it. Details reported by the military controller indicated that the UFOs were traveling thousands of miles per hour as they maneuvered in the airspace around the 747. Wow. Yeah, see, pacing it, you might be doing 600. Right. You know, when you convert to kilometers, you might be doing 600 miles an hour, but the, they describe these things as in vanishing in an instant. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. you know, star drive, hello, something, right. you know, hey, like that. I, I don't know what else to call it, but their technology is so advanced, it's no wonder they evaded radar and stuff like that. If, a, if an advanced species is yep. monitoring us, mm-hmm. they may... They may drop in and 
you know, take the occasional peak, but they're also going to make sure that their tracks are covered and nobody can catch oh, them. Oh, yeah. You're not going to get them on radar. No. You're not going to catch them on any kind of radio frequency because they're probably monitoring everything we say anyway. Now, sometimes they do, but not you, all the time. You, know, you don't know. Yeah. But Now, you said Star Drive. That, that, that's an interesting point because that goes back to my, my belief that they're, they're using... Star Drive would mean that they're manipulating space and time around them. I mean, they literally vanished in milliseconds. Right. I mean, gone. Yeah. yeah. See ya. So my belief is that they're actually, uh, when they're disappearing, they're actually entering a different dimension and then making turns or whatever and then coming back out a different part of the sky in our dimension. And but because we don't see them entering and leaving the dimension, it looks like they went from one place to another super fast. Do you think they can either cloak or perhaps even phase? I think, I'm sure they can cloak and phase, but to I think where they, they can still be in the same in the same area but invisible in some form yeah i, I believe they can do that too yeah oh yeah some yeah I, of, I believe they can cloak in face as well yeah some kind of light light bending technology of course yeah absolutely real easy yeah so the military controller had one other surprise finding near the end of the incident an united airlines flight was diverted to observe the jla flight by then captain tarachi no longer saw the huge ufo and the united pilot did not see it either Unbeknownst to both of them, the military radar clearly indicated that the UFO had tucked out of sight behind the United flight and had begun following it. Now, wait a minute. But the other plane didn't see them. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wait a minute. It started following them. I, I, I Wait a minute. This might be coming around to the whole okay. radar. Yeah. So, so, the, so the, the United flight didn't see the UFO, but the military radar tracked the UFO tucking out of sight behind the United flight before it got a chance to see that see the ufo and then began following the united flight hmm. so it's playing hide and seek with the united flight yes it's, it's doing that that cartoon thing where the 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 cat like tom and jerry walk up behind the dude oh yeah and the guy looks behind him but then he turns at the same time move. yeah so you can't see him yeah yeah that's what it's doing it's playing tom and jerry with it uh although sitting through uh, after sitting through the presentation callahan's boss turned to him and said don't talk to anybody until i give you the okay the next day his boss set up a briefing according to callahan quote i brought all the people from the tech center we went upstairs we had all kinds of boxes of data that we handed them printouts it filled up the room they brought in three people from the fbi three from the cia and three from reagan's scientific study team and i don't know who the rest of the people were but they were all excited yeah Callahan and the staff showed the ensemblage everything they had and answered a lot of technical questions. When they got done, they actually swore all these other guys into. It never took place. We never had this meeting, and this was never recorded. Oh, I see. Oh, they t- to put them under oath mm-hmm. to, to keep their mouths shut. So this was one of the guys from the CIA. I asked him at the time, I don't know why you're saying this. I mean, if there was something there, and if it's not the then-in-development stealth bomber, then you know it's a UFO. And if it's UFO, why wouldn't you want the people to know? It's very much in line with you, James. Yep. He said that if they come out and told the American public that they ran into a UFO out there, it would cause panic across the country. So therefore, we can't talk about it. And we're and we're taking all this data. They did take the data, but Callahan had copies of everything in his office. Smart, Ignorance is bliss. Smart man, that Callahan. Let me tell you. Yeah. When they asked me, <laughs> I was like, I'm choppy and shit. That's all right. When they asked me what I thought, I told them that it looked like we had a UFO that was up there. As far as I was concerned, Reagan's science team were the ones that verified my own thoughts about it. They were very, very excited about the data. They had said at that time that this was the only time, and they used the words, a UFO was ever recorded on radar for any length of time. Now, there's a short epilogue 
to the story. Within months of the incident, Captain Tarachi was banished to a desk job because he had embarrassed the company. He talked to the press. That's mm-hmm. what happened. He mm-hmm. talked to somebody before they could shut him up. Right. He was later fully instated a few years after that. Uh, John Callahan retired from the FAA, becoming an industry consultant, and periodically recounted the true story of the JLA flight 1628. Now this John, what's his name? Callahan. John Callahan worked for the government. So you don't believe him? I don't believe he was a member of the air air traffic control service or something. I believe they got government people tucked into everything. So even though he was trying to get the story out to the American people, you don't believe him? Nope. So, because it didn't get out to the American people, at least not in full. Um, but what we have today came out because of him, and it could also be carefully guided because of him. But that we know certain things, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't trust people, <laughs> I, I, I think you're a little too conspiratorial, like you don't uh, believe anything. No, I don't, you know, I, I believe, but I don't believe you don't believe, but you don't believe, yeah. Well, well, that that's um, man, that that is a crazy, crazy, crazy encounter. Especially the fact that they had three different um radar data sets from for them: the, the FAA, Anchorage, and the military. And where were the cameras? I believe don't these airlines have black boxes, cameras, things of that nature, even in those time periods? I don't know if they had cameras in '86. I don't think they had cameras. Oh, who knows? But they had black boxes, but I don't think they go into the black boxes unless there's some sort of a um accident or crash or something i suppose uh this has been a lot of fun absolutely uh this was a very interesting episode i'm I'm getting to enjoy this podcast uh more and more and i do love me some ufos and i am looking forward to all the other good and cool and crazy stuff we're gonna run into out there and i'm looking forward to what our next entry is and what other like you said other weird stuff that we come across absolutely all right guys well then we will see you on next episode until then keep watching the skies that's right Peace out, guys. Peace. Oh, and don't forget to stay tuned for the personal encounter stories coming up right now. Story 1, as reported to the Mutual UFO Network, occurred October 15, 1936, at approximately 1700, reported February 5, 2001, at approximately 0028, posted March 21, 2003, location, Eklutna, Alaska, shape, cigar, duration, 3 minutes. Two men approached by a cigar-shaped object in the night sky. I happened to be in Alaska because I was working for Washington Fish and Oyster Company at their canary on Shuyak Island called Port Williams. I was a mechanic doing all manner of repair work besides making cans for the salmon with Continental Can Company equipment. I made the cans and then we checked constantly to ensure proper sealing. When the salmon season was over, I decided to go to Anchorage and secure a job. This was not to be and I found myself working for the Civilian Conservation Corps. I helped establish the camp at Eklutna, 27 miles north of Anchorage, on the now old highway. This was the construction site of Eklutna's power plant buildings, and all were still intact and we took it over. The exact number of young men who arrived, there was probably 10, and they were all, I believe, from the eastern states. New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts. It was cold, 20 to 25 degrees Fahrenheit, with about 10 inches of snow on the ground. We all slept in a large bunkhouse, and free time was spent around the coal-burning stove playing cards, reading, or just conversation. One of the fellows was called Peterson. Weekends were long and the biggest activity was chucking coal into the stove. Everyone took turns to keep the fire going during the night. On this particular Saturday night, Peterson and I decided to hitch a ride to Anchorage and go to a movie. The others thought we were out of our minds with the freezing cold and all. The two of us started out. The sky was pitch black with the stars glistening like jewels and the air was still. Walking along at a brisk pace to keep warm, 
We must have covered four or five miles and no cars came. As we entered an open area, we heard this sound, turned around and saw this intense bluish light. Oh joy, I thought. A truck. It had to be with one headlight burned out. Wrong. It was not on the road, but up in the air. This was startling to say the least. The sound we heard was the sound of a jet turbine being shut down, not a high-pitched sound. Dumbfounded, it took a few seconds for us to react. It seemed to be moving rather slowly, maybe 35 to 40 miles per hour. In the ensuing moments, we flattened ourselves in the snow when it passed overhead. In the few moments I looked at it, it was, to all appearances, cigar-shaped with a bluish light on the side. However, a few seconds later, when the light faded some, I looked up and it appeared wider. Peterson and I were now standing up, looking at the object heading east. It was headed towards a mountain or high foothills. As we kept looking at it, we both thought it would crash into the mountain. It seemed to lift up and went over and down the other side. We looked at each other and exclaimed, what in the hell was that? We decided to return to camp, which we did, wondering what we had seen. NUFORC note. Report submitted in written form to the National UFO Reporting Center by Mr. Holger Berg. Our gratitude to Mr. Berg for typing the report. We spoke with Mr. Berg on many occasions about his sighting, and we found his story to be most compelling. We are very pleased to have received his story before his death on January 27, 2001 at age 83, and we are saddened by his passing. Story 2. Occurred February 1, 1954 at 0200. I had been scrambled off about 2 a.m. with my backseat radar observer. We had made our intercept and were released by crane control. As was the custom, we were flying about burning up fuel as it was unwise to land with much fuel left in the wingtip tanks. We were about 50 miles northwest of Ladd when we were, re when we were recontacted by crane control. They said that the Anchorage Radar Control Station, whose name I have forgotten, had contacted them and that there was an object flying north at about 1,100 to 1,200 knots per hour. They handed off the contact to Crane Control. Note, this was 1954. Nothing flew that fast in 1954. By chance, we were in the flight path of the object. This was February, and at that latitude, it was, it was bitter cold and very black. Crane control gave me a vector for an intercept. My radar operator soon picked up the object and we had a head-on intercept or very close. Not the best situation, but I plowed right ahead and kept the bogey dead center. It took only about 30 seconds for the intercept, such as it was. I was sure I was dead. Nothing happened. No visual, no turbulence, no static or anything. I did about a 3G 180 and my radar observer picked it up again, and then it was gone. Anchorage is about 250 nautical miles south of Fairbanks. We were about 50 miles north, so the entire event must have taken about 20 to 30 minutes. This is no great story, but I am 80 years old, and I don't want it to die with me. The important point is that the object was picked up by three different radars. It had mass and size enough to return a pretty good radar return. I hope this adds something to your files. N-U-F-O-R-C note. Witness indicated the date of incident is approximate. Reported 12-6-2008 at 1831 hours. Posted 1-10-2009. Location Fairbanks, Alaska. Shape unknown. Duration 19 minutes. <laughs>